So, part eight of Call to Faith, uh, and this is the world we're in. What I'm going to do is a um, slightly different approach to this. Uh, we're going to go through the text, and then I'll tell you kind of what we're going to draw out of this lesson uh, today, of this teaching. Uh, so I'm going to get straight into this this morning. Zechariah 5 is what we're looking at. Another strange one uh, in all the imagery that you'll see uh, as we go through it. So let's have a look at one to four, and I'll explain the context of these verses. Uh, I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. Verse two says, he asked me, what do you see? Uh, I answered, I see a, a, a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land, for according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. So this is the sixth vision of the flying scroll or the scroll, flying roll, but I think it's meant to be flying scroll. Uh, it's to show that those who sin openly will not hinder God's work. So regardless of what people do in one sense, of in, uh, in this earth as human beings, God's plan cannot be hindered. His work cannot be changed. Uh, God's judgment, as it says here, will come upon them and they will not escape. Some technical things about the scroll. You might have, it's quite big, the scroll. Um, you would not expect to see a scroll of this size when you think of kings that receive scrolls and they open them up and they read them, diktats or whatever. Uh, this is a very big scroll, uh, 30 feet long, 15 feet wide. And some say this is uh, in the porch area of Solomon's temple. Um, to be a bit more specific, what I think is looking at the measurements, and I'll show you a picture of this actually, this is the tabernacle. Now the first part of that tabernacle, which is the bit where the lampstand is, is exactly uh, 30 feet by 15 feet. Uh, so it's all this imagery, this is all imagery, this is all references. Whether that is exactly what this is, is to be debated, um, but a representation uh, of it anyway, um, and it does appear to represent this place. Also, we learned last week about that there was a, a lampstand uh, that we learned about that was feeding from the oil that came from the trees that fed the candles and all that other imagery. Uh, so in a sense, this is quite relevant um, as we look at this, because the lampstand is also in the tabernacle, in the holy place. The, the first part of this is called the holy place. The second part, deep inside, is called the most holy place, uh, where only the priests uh, could enter, only people who were designated, only people who were allowed could go in there. Uh, so we get a sense that this might be a representation of what we see the lampstand uh, and what we see in the flying scroll. But it is helpful if we think of this scroll as something holy and how it will come upon the land with the scroll, symbolizing the law of God, as it says. It will be a curse or a punishment on all who disobey it. The curse for stealing was written on one side uh, of the scroll and the curse for swearing was written on the other. And swearing in, in this context is, uh, was a very serious offense in the sight of God. It was a lie, in effect. Uh, it's not swearing as you might think swearing is today. 
uh, but it is swearing on God. It is saying that I promise by God's name I will do this. I promise by God I will do that. And so in that sense, when you, when you promise on God that you'll do something, it's a very serious matter when you don't do it. It's what effectively this text is talking about. Uh, there's also a sense this comes from the Ten Commandments as well, because we see that in the Ten Commandments also. Um, and so what we know is that unholy things cannot be in the presence of God in his holy place, just like we see in the temple uh, right then in the tabernacle. It has an immediate message to those of Zechariah's time as well, uh, that God will root out and destroy the sinners who reject his word. But it also has this future message for Israel and the world prior to the Messiah's coming. The curse, as it's stated here, will not automatically go away. There is chance, however, there is opportunity for people to repent. There is opportunity for people to turn away and change their ways, and God will remove that curse. So it's not final in the sense that we see a, a final, this is it, there's no escape, doesn't matter what you do now, it's finished. Actually, there is a, this is what will happen, a very clear message, if you don't repent and give your life to, to God and say that I believe he is the living God, the Holy One, has all authority over everything. Uh, there is still opportunity. It's very, we must be very clear about that. And then it goes on, verse uh, 5 to 11. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up and see what is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Verse 7, then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman he said this is wickedness and he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it then i looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings they had wings like those of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth where are they taking the basket i asked the angel who was speaking to me he replied to the country of babylonia to build a house for it when the house is ready the basket will be set in its place. Okay. <laughs> what is going on here? This is the seventh vision. The seventh vision of the woman in the basket. And she represents the iniquity of the people. She represents an imagery of sin in the people. The significance of the vision for, the, for Israel of Zechariah's day is that wickedness must be removed entirely. It must be removed from the land. So where he's speaking of, where the, this, he's showing this imagery as it currently sits with the people that have returned from Babylonia or from Babylon, they've come back and what they've brought with them is things they shouldn't have brought with them. They've brought kind of a very, uh, a sense of root of wickedness, but they've also brought materialism. They've brought all sorts of worldly things with them as they have come back. So God says, uh, that must be removed. It must be taken away. I must seal it down completely and remove it so god is simply doing this because only god can do it and not man so the people as god is telling them should not let any form of wickedness deter them from their task of bringing the temple to completion so god's preparing a way ultimately for his people to be able to build this temple and the problem is we, we learned i think probably in haggai i believe as I remember, that if you kind of have dirty hands, if you kind of have a dirty heart, a black heart, a sinful heart, but you're building the temple, God doesn't want that. He doesn't want this putting into sin into his holy place. 
so he provides a way for them to be clean uh, through the coming of Jesus, as it were, but obviously in that moment too. The previous vision, as we saw, dealt with the purging of sinners from the land, and this seventh vision of a woman in a basket continues the theme, focusing on this removal of the sinful system from Israel. Inside the basket was sitting a woman, it says, and she personifies this final wickedness. And we see that also in Revelation, that it is a woman who is represented here as wickedness. And it's not dormant. Um, the cover, the lead cover is required to restrain, restrain this woman in the basket. So think of it like this, and a probably more easy way to understand, the basket is not a big basket. So the woman is quite small. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament, what used to happen is people used to make idols of other gods. And they used to be quite small idols, right? They used to be small things that they would put and represent their idols. There's a sense that what this woman is, is a small idol. And so the picture is actually in the physical term that they're having this woman, this idol, this thing they've made as the thing that they're worshipping. So you see the imagery kind of gets a little bit easy to understand when actually you turn it into a... I don't know what we even have today with people making things to idolize, to worship, brings me good luck, brings me this, brings me good fortune, brings me money, whatever you want to call it. So this is a kind of sense of what this woman is. It's a very small woman in a basket, but God is able to restrain her. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 to 8 says, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So we're talking about a future time in this particular context, but the same uh, principle applies in what we're seeing. Uh, God is holding down, able to put a lead cover over, in a sense, imagery again, but he's able to suppress the power of wickedness, of evil, in effect, Satan. So he's able to do that, and he's able to suppress it and put it away and say it, it's going to go from this place no more. Uh, later on in Revelation, in the future times, we see that actually, which is what Thessalonians is pointing to, there is a time when that will be opened, and evil will spread even more so, but it's it, there's a good reason for why that's got to happen. And, and it's really helpful to know why God will let that happen and it, why it needs to happen. We see in Zechariah God raising the lead cover and lowering it again. And this is for us to see God demonstrating his authority over evil. So there's almost, a, there'll be a visual representation of us seeing God able to control, has authority over evilness, Satan himself. But he shows that to us. So there's a sense he can lift it and he can shut it down. We also see in Thessalonians, God allowing evil and wickedness to reveal itself as a way to demonstrate his power in the last days. Again, let it open, but has the power to close it whenever the time is right. So this is about authority. God has authority, no matter how much it looks like. Why is God allowing evil out of a basket? Why is God allowing Satan out of his basket? There's a reason for it. Demonstrate his power. So we can see that he is truly a true worshipful God we, that we must worship and obey he is a God who is always in control and even in the time when he allows evil and wickedness to come through in the last days of the Antichrist we will see the same authority and power so the assurance is found in God's supreme ability and reign 
to overcome this power of darkness. The woman, in a more general sense, symbolizes all sinners and all sin. The Hebrew word for wickedness is feminine. Make what you will of that. Um, no, don't. I'm joking. Uh, what, what, you, what you need to make of it is that it's not women. Okay, so be really careful. It's not women. It's a woman. It's a single woman who is evil, uh, but still only a representation. Uh, what it's not saying is that women are evil. Just need to be clear. We had this before, didn't we, some months ago. I had to be clear that what it's not saying is that women were evil. It was always a representation of a single woman in this particular instance, as it was then, as we've always had anything that represents a woman in terms of evil, it's one woman, it's not womenkind, it's not women altogether, it's one single woman. So th the meaning is not to say uh, it's all women, but in this, in this case, it is a woman. So the woman, the basket and the weight were associated with wickedness. They were images of greed, materialism, dishonesty for profit. Zechariah prophesies to those who returned from Babylonian exile. God's people came back from Babylon with this materialism problem. And this vision spoke to this problem. God would allow this evil, this materialistic spirit, to be returned to its starting place. He would send it back to Babylon. The two women set the idol of materialism where it belonged, and there it would be eventually de destroyed. If you go into more detail, uh, they set it on, on a plinth, as it were, and what's going to happen later on, again, it's all imagery, what's going to happen <coughs> excuse me, later on is that that woman is going to be defeated, that evil is going to be defeated. So it's going to be let out, but it's only going to have a kind of pretend throne, in effect, for a short time, and then God will finish the work, as it were. So these two women who carry the basket away are likely agents of evil, um, it's very easy to get these confused with angels. I don't think they're angels. The reason for that is the Bible doesn't say they're angels. Every time there's an angel, the Bible says it's an angel. Just be clear on that. Calls them two women with wings, which would suggest some hybrid nature of their appearance. The, the bigger thing that tells you they're evil is because it's described as stalk wings. And stalk is an unclean animal in old Hebrew, in old, old Jewish um, ways, as it were. They're unclean animals, so there's no way these could be angels, even if someone says uh, they were. Uh, and they are on the only female angels, um, like people mentioned in all of the Bible, and so are not angels at all. So, what are we looking at? Let me take a drink. The theme today is worldliness is incompatible with the kingdom. It's kind of what I want to focus on. Uh, we've got, gone through the text. I want to focus on a theme that we need to be looking at today. I think it's relevant for us. Um, I want us to understand today that when you become a Christian, that lifelong journey is about a process. Training our minds, training our hearts through the Bible, the Holy Spirit, to move away from worldliness and be changed into the being more like Christ. In effect, as we mature in the faith, our interest in the things of the world becomes less and less as we focus on him more and more. If we're focusing more on the world, we're losing focus on Jesus. And that's, this is a really important point I want to get across today about how these two things are not compatible in our walk as uh, Christians. Let's start with this understanding of what the word world means. John 17, 13 to 19 is helpful. 
He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take, you take, me, take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So when we read of the world in the New Testament, this word of world, what we're reading into, what the meaning is, is cosmos. It means the physical. It means the things that you can see around you. And cosmos most often refers to the inhabited earth, the people who live on the earth. So again, things you can see. And it functions apart from God in, 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 in some sense. Maybe sometimes we've understood worldliness in a Christian context as only being about materialism, when in fact materialism itself is, is a kind of, is, is an outward result, it's a symptom of what's going on. It's, it's an outward effect of what's really going on in the heart. Materialism is just one thing uh, of what's going on. It's a cause, the cause is a bigger world system uh, that is essentially ruled by Satan. Uh, 1 John 5.19 says this, as we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So what this is describing is a world system. Physical things, world system of things, human system of things, saying that the devil, Satan, is in control of those things, operates, plans, controls, does, does certain things to tempt people to do certain things for his work. The people who were exiled to Babylon, so Babylon is this place where it's kind of rotten to the core, it's got terrible things going on, all sorts of influences that are not healthy for people. But the people who were exiled to Babylon in Zacharias, they came back after the exile with this worldliness problem. Uh, and so materialism was only one of those issues. What the underlying problem was that caused the greed and the materialism and the dishonesty was blindly and willingly aligning themselves to a worldly system ruled by Satan. So they, they allowed themselves to get so caught up in what was going on around them that they then, all their actions became that fitting to that system. Does that make sense? So, so they allowed that to influence them and so they would, their outward actions would match the environment that they were in. So hence we get this call of what this is about today which is don't be of the world, be in the world. It's very difficult because it means even right down to the core, we need to not allow ourselves to get drawn in to the world system, as it were, because otherwise we'll start behaving like that. We'll start doing those things uh, that other people do. And so we, how can we show Jesus? And so let's be careful. Let's be careful here. When the Bible talks about worldly systems, it's not, it's not talking about conspiracy theories. That might arise on the internet in any even day. And I'm telling you, over the years, my goodness, the, the amount of conspiracy theories I've seen is just insane. I'm sure you have seen it yourself in some form or another, not even on the internet, on TV, on wherever it is, all sorts of people um, talking all sorts of stuff that's not true. What the Bible speaks about is a broken world full of broken people that are being exploited by Satan every single day. And as Christians, as we are continually made new in Christ, we learn, at least we try, 
to keep our eyes fixed on the truth of God's word. As we interest ourselves more with the word than with the things of the world, what we're able to do is to start to see this bigger picture. What we're able to do is identify the things that are actually, we're just, we, we need, the things we need to stay away from. The things that are actually very small things that turn into very bad influential things in our lives that turn us into doing the actions that are not godly, that are not honourable to God himself. Believers in Jesus are simply in the world. We're just physically present in this world around us. Is that me? Is that the speaker? That's not, I'm just sorry. I had trouble with this mic yesterday, uh, a couple of days ago and it was, it was hissing and all sorts. Sorry, just making sure that wasn't my microphone. Okay. So as, as believers in Christ, we're, we're simply in the world. We're physically present. We're not of it, not part of its values. As believers, we should be set apart from it. And this is the meaning of being holy and living a holy, righteous life and so to be set apart. So this is one of those verses as Christians that we would know probably a lot, uh, heard it a lot of times. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. This is a daily activity and commitment. This doesn't end for Christians. But here is the fundamental part. What we as Christians might not always be aware of, and what we need to be asking ourselves is this. In my walk as a Christian, am I compromising that walk or mixing it up with the pattern of the world? The faith that is transforming me from the inside, does it start to affect and change the outside? Does it change the things that I do, the habits that I've had before into things or away from those things and so honour God in my behaviour? Or am I just following the pattern of the world in my behaviour? Do I use Christ to justify my actions? Or do I allow conviction through the Holy Spirit that only Christ can justify me by his grace? Lots of questions. When we have Christ, we consider ourselves no longer people of this world, but of his kingdom. So is... So is there at the very least an attempt to subdue or control these urges we have that do not affect Christ-like behaviour? Is, is there a, do we attempt to even do that? Because this is really important. We're not, we're not doing this to earn God's favour, okay? We're not doing it to earn salvation. That needs to be repeated again and again. Once you believe in Jesus, accept that he is Lord, you are saved. However, there is a problem when the heart and therefore the actions don't change. Then you have to go all the way back to the beginning and ask yourself, when I made that commitment, did I really make the commitment? Because then you have to ask yourself, did I really know Jesus for the Jesus of the Bible or do I know Jesus for the Jesus that I have in my head? These are really important things. Am I in the world or am I still of the world? We're not doing it because we, we're doing it just to be better people, but because as those things come to mind and tempt us to action on them, so we ask again, are we allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us? 
are we being open and honest with the Holy Spirit and saying, that's, that's, I, that's not right. That doesn't honor my Lord and Savior. That doesn't honor God. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't align with what he wants me to do. One of the hard, hardest struggles Christians will have, uh, and this is my view, but um, if we're willing to, if we only if we're willing to admit it to ourselves, I think um, this is this is one of the hardest struggles. It is to be Christ-like and loving to those around us, seeing the torment and pain that the world puts itself through, seeing the brokenness in ourselves as well as others. Even as Christians, we're, we're no less broken, no less sinful, no less in need of a saviour than the next person. The hardest thing is to, is to see the pain of the world and in many ways continue in the faith because we see it around us. And when we see the world in its physical behaviour, we can get disheartened if we don't know the real Jesus, if we don't know that the Holy Spirit is the one who is in us, who is inhabiting within us, who has given us all the strength and support that we need because that's who he sent after he ascended. It is the hardest thing for Christians to see the torment going on in the world around us and remain, continue to be Christ-like in as much as we can. What is dangerous for the Christian, I think, and for God's church is when we profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, who admit we're in need of a Saviour, but then, but then refuse the work of sanctification. Sanctification is that where you, where you change, you're ever changing in order into this image of what God wants you, is, you're going to be when you meet him. What's dangerous is, is when we refuse the work of sanctification and continue in our unchanged ways, because of a self-righteousness that still has control over us. These are all really particular and detailed things, but they're really important because we often look at worldliness as very obvious things that happen to us, very obvious things that attack us, when in fact they're very small things that slowly chip away over time in our faith, in our belief, try to dissuade us from believing in Jesus. But they're very small things. Self-righteousness is certainly one of those things where it can run away with itself. But when we're in that state, what we've done, when we allow that to happen to us, we've allowed a worldly system to influence us. Just as we see in the, in the exiles returning, what they did, they allowed that worldly system to influence their lives. And so no longer are they living as much as they can to God and, and being obedient. Now they're living to an obedience to the worldly system. So then they come and act, act and behave like the worldly system. They do things that the worldly, the world does. There's selfishness, there's greed, there's materialism, there's all that stuff. So we need to be careful that we don't allow that to happen, that we don't conform to the pattern of the world that Satan always wants us to do. Being in the world but not of it is necessary if we're to be a light to those who are in spiritual darkness. This is why it's, it's a big challenge for us as Christians. For those that believe in Jesus, this is a big challenge. We're called to be in the world in a world that is horrifically broken, horrifically evil, horrifically sinful, 
because we know ourselves that we've recognized sin in ourselves. But we are to live in such a way to God and not to others so that those outside the faith see our good deeds and our manner and know that there is something different about us. But I need to tell you again, this is a fine line. We need to be really careful. There's a fine line between living the uncompromising truth of God's word and using God's word for our own self-righteousness. It's, it's, a, it's such a fine line. And the, the way to not go over that line is to study the word. To know the Jesus that you, you're claiming to believe in is to read about him and get to know him more. Christians are called to live for God so that others may come to him. We are not Christians to spite, injure or hurt others. For that makes us less Christ-like and so do him a great disservice. If people are going to know Jesus and we are at least in some way, some form of book, page, an introduction to, then we're not doing it because we don't like what they do. We're doing it because we want them to be, have a life of eternal life with Jesus. Now, yes, that does involve change. It does involve making a choice and saying, I believe in Jesus. But we don't do it to spite people. We don't do it because I don't like them or they get on my nerves. L listen, this happens all the time. We're all human beings. Things, people get on our nerves sometimes. It, it happens. It's a fact of life, I'm afraid. So this is why the Christian faith isn't about sitting back and just kind of letting stuff come into your brain, letting stuff just happen to you. There's an active faith that we have, something that we have to keep living to every day. And so getting into the word, seeking the Holy Spirit and trying to understand how God wants us to be. Matthew 20, 25 to 28 says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you he said whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many <laughs> i can't remember the context i've read about this verse um some a few weeks ago and it was, it was greatly taken out of context entirely. And I don't know how they did it. I don't see anything else in this other than if you want to be great in the kingdom of the Lord, then you've got to be the servant. It's simple as that. There's, you can mess the words, words around a bit as someone I think was doing when I was reading their opinion on this verse. Uh, but actually, if you want to become great in the kingdom, you must become last. You must be prepared to serve. Jesus himself, who is God, says, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. If he came to serve and he's the God of the universe, I don't think we've got any excuses. We can become so obsessed in this world with position, power and authority and influence that I think we can completely lose sight of what it really means to be in the world and not of it. There's a strange contradiction in the Christian world, I mean, there's a lot of them, not to do with the Bible, by the way, but because what people come up with is kind of crazy. Uh, and it's something I believe to be a falsehood as well as a contradiction. 
when, think, when people think about being a Christian in the world, it normally wanders into this strange theology that calls itself, it, amongst many of them, but this particular one is, is quite a, a common one. It's called the Seven Mountain Mandate. <laughs> and this is the Seven Mountain Theology, which, by the way, has been taught over here in this country, not just in the US. You might think it's all this stuff's from America, but it's actually been taught over here for a very long time. What this does is it takes verses like being in the world and not of it, and it uses, uses it to justify a system that says the church needs to bring change in the seven spheres of influence in society. And apparently these are the seven places that Christians need to be in. The danger with this methodology, I call it a theology, it should be methodology because it's not a theology at all, is that what it suggests is that it's using a world system that we must own and be in and lead these systems, these places in the world, in order that Christ may reign. There, there is a problem with this. this. This methodology says that each individual Christian is to find their particular mountain to which he or she is called to and to be a leader in that realm. This is one step away from the worst kind of terrible, n not even anything to do with Christianity, but another theology called dominion theology. This is where it, go it goes bad. So let me, let me just try and explain this to make sure you understand. What people think is that Christians need to go out. I say people is what some people who claim to be Christians think. They're saying you need to go out and you need to own these areas. You need to be ruler of this area. You need, if you're in education, you need to get to the top of it so we can start getting Christianity in education. We need to get Christianity in religion, we need Christianity in family, in business, in government, in military, arts, entertainment, media. It says that we must get into and influence and change, own these mountains, as it were. What this does is lead to this thing called uh, dominion theology. Briefly, dominion theology believes that God desires Christians to rise to power and govern the nation according to biblical precepts. This is crazy, isn't it? This sounds on the surface like we should do it. It sounds like, hang on, but we should be in these places, right? We should be influencing and, and you know, speaking about Jesus in these places. But there's a contradiction to this, massively, if you haven't seen it already. If being of the world in the Bible means a worldly system ruled by Satan, then in fact we're to be no part of that system. The only way that that exists is because there's a world system that supports it, that, put, that props it up. These so-called theologies compromise the original meaning of what it means to be in the world and not of it. Let me put it this way. How are you able to stop yourself from being of the world if, in fact, you rely on the world to get you there and give you the power of influence over others through that position and power? Tell me how that makes sense. Tell me how Christians are to believe this, and I'm going to say it's nonsense, because it is utter nonsense. Because what we're doing is relying on a world system to get us to the position and then so-called claim Christianity, claim Jesus in them. This is compromised. 
This is a compromised system of Christianity. Here is the truth. The Lord will do his work in any way he sees fit. We have no direct command in scripture to seek positions of influence in society. It doesn't exist. It's not there. The only call that is made to Christians is that we share the gospel, make disciples, and be Jesus' witnesses in all the world. God may use anyone, regardless of how high on the mountain he or she is. But here is why it is the, here is the killer argument, and I'm not going to use my opinion, I'm going to use the Bible. Here is the Bible verses that tell you that silly theology of why it's so silly. God has specifically chosen the lowly to do his work. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29 clearly says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. How do you avoid boasting when you follow a system that says go and get success and probably virtually celebrity within these fears and not boast about yourself? It's rubbish, isn't it? It's, it's just utter nonsense. And people feeding this into Christianity, people believing it, because, you know, it feeds into these other things, just like we see in Zechariah here today, but we're reading. It feeds into other things, a desire to want power, to want money, to have greed, to want position, power, authority. So people start bringing in these things, it feeds into the human element, the, the heart, the sinful heart element of who we are. The key point here is that as Christians, we operate in a worldly system, taking the gospel wherever we go, but we are no longer a product of that worldly system. For those that believe in Jesus, we're a new creation. We're not a product anymore of what the world makes us when we didn't believe in him. So the world desperately needs Jesus. And we're to take this message of Jesus into all the world. What we need is for people, as they're seen by God, to come to him as they are, so to be continually changed to be a good and faithful servant of the gospel. It's really simple. And yet we've managed to come up with these amazing, complex, useless theologies that don't help us. It is as basic as this. Sharing the hope of Jesus with a friend, a family member or a neighbour regardless of our position or their position in society, career, whatever. My job or my career or position in this worldly system will not and does not impress God in the slightest. I could be CEO of a major company, global company, and you know what? God's not impressed. Our desire to want to see people come to Jesus and serve God in doing so is what is paramount. 
So whether you are a CEO of a company, of a major organisation, or whether you're a cleaner, the gospel works regardless. It doesn't need you to be have high importance or high authority. It needs Christians to believe that the word is sufficient to bring people to him. Zechariah 5 speaks of God having authority over evil. It tells us that in order to be the presence in the presence of a holy God, we must be prepared to repent and change our ways. Our own journey of struggling uh, to come to God and believe is not something to be put aside now we might believe. Just as God shows his authority in being able to control wickedness, so we will use and should continue to use our testimony to show that God has authority to overcome our sinfulness and has done. And so bring us into the fullness of life, into his family, through Jesus Christ. What matters is not how much we make our opinion heard in the wider world. What matters is that we take Jesus into the world wherever we go and whoever we are. It is the one faith, let me say, that is the leveller. There are no positions of power in the kingdom of God. God is all-powerful and all-sufficient for himself. And when you come under that, when you look at the Bible, when you read about Jesus, learn about the gospel, everyone starts from zero. Everybody, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, everybody starts from zero. And nobody can go above the other person. No one can boast in themselves about how well they've done because I'm a Christian now and you're not. It's only because of him through his allowing grace that we can even become Christian. It is only by his grace that I can choose to become a Christian. It's only by Jesus that I can choose to become a Christian. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Otherwise, it means nothing. What matters is that when we do that, when we take Jesus into the world, we do it with authenticity and that we're believable. And John 17 tells us exactly this, and this is the way it must be done. 20 to 23, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Key verse, verse 21. That's not on there. Missed that one out, I'm afraid. I'm losing it. Ah. I'm going to leave this one on there. Okay, good. Verse 21 is the key. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are one in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. To be in the world as believers in Christ means that we have to drop that which is not about him. If it's not about him, we have to let it go. Those things and behaviours that are of the world are dangerous to a believer. As believers, we have to focus all of our mind, our body, our soul and actions on the one true King, Jesus Christ. 
we have to shake off that which is incompatible with the faith in Jesus Christ. We have to be one under Christ with the single-minded mission of sharing the gospel so as to bring many to a knowledge of the one true saviour. The world will not believe that we are one with Jesus if we give a half-worldly, condition-based gospel. To be believable to the world, we have to believe in the one who sent us into it and for the reasons he did it. And I'm going to end as I started. John 17, verses 13 to 19, if it will let me. Of course it will go there now. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Let's pray, and then we'll worship today.